Hi everybody, I'm John Sherwood and this is my podcast where I seek to fuel faith in Jesus in the 21st century. I'm a minister of the gospel and believe in making disciples who make disciples because Jesus really is beautiful and amazing and worth following with everything that we have. You can check out more resources at my website, johnsherwood.com, where I write about the intersection of faith and modern culture, as well as Bible study, leadership, and faith interviews, all designed to help ignite and fuel faith in Jesus Christ. And with all that, let's dive into the episode. We've been in this one series together. And we've been reading in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4 through 6. Could I have somebody stand up and read that for me? Daniela, would you mind? So we've been talking about what we've called our one series, and we've been talking about the one Lord, the one hope, the one faith. Today is actually going to be about the one baptism. And so before we dive in, I want to kind of lay some groundwork and make a few disclaimers as well. So some people might think, oh, the one baptism, that's the big kahuna burger, right? (laughs) Well, no, I don't think so. I think the big kahuna burger of Christianity is the resurrection and lordship of Jesus. When Paul says there's one Lord, I think that's really the big kahuna burger. However, I would also state that how can we experience or have this one baptism in the name of Jesus if we don't truly know who Jesus is and who he is in the New Testament presented as Lord? Unfortunately, like I've said many times, I believe much of the Western Christian world has been taught a form of a gospel where salvation and discipleship have been divorced from one another. And that's really not what you see in the scriptures, and it's not what Jesus taught. So in this one series that we've been doing together, we've been meeting in the gym. They had a little scheduling conflict, so we're here in a little bit of a smaller room. But in the gym, we've been at these round tables, and we've been inviting people to have discussions at their tables during the sermon because we want people to have an experience at church where they're participating and not just spectating. Okay, We really try to diminish and minimize as much as we can people learning church as a spectator sport because that's not what it's designed to be. But we're not around tables today, so you might be really glad about that because you don't have to talk to as many people. But I'm going to ask that you to interact with me a little bit, okay? I'm at your round table this morning. So why do you think baptism can be such a controversial topic among Christians? What do you think? Why is baptism such a controversial topic amongst Christians? What are some of your thoughts? Yes, sir. Everybody looks, people look at the same verse and have, they get different things out of it. Okay. And they form a belief system out of that thing, and they believe it their entire lives or a good portion of their own. You can't budge them with a crowbar after that point. Okay. All right. So people can read the same verses and come away with different conclusions. And then also, you mentioned two things, really, that we also have an experiential framework or lens in which we view life that include our experiences, our upbringing, what we've been taught, etc. Everybody has those lenses. What else? Yes, sir? Some people may believe that you don't have to be baptized. 
Okay. Okay, great, yeah. People see it as a work. Okay. People, he said people see it as a work. So people view baptism differently. Okay. I'm not asking what are the controversies. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. I'm saying why do we think baptism is controversial amongst Christians especially? Yes, ma'am. Pride, I see it my way, you see it your way, my way is right. Okay, pride. Okay, uh, yes. To me, it, it forces them to really see where they're really at. And if they really want to believe that they're okay, that they can make it controversial when it's basically very simple. Okay, all right, yep, yeah. I'm back. Yes. <laughs> All right, let's jump in now. Okay, so today we're just going to do a high-level flyover. We're cruising at about 30,000 feet on this topic of one baptism. There's no way that I have the ability in this roughly 30-minute presentation to discuss all of the topic of baptism in the New Testament or the Old Testament. So it's a, it's a high-level flyover. So I want to state that so I can set your expectations. Yes, you might walk away with more questions after I'm done. That's okay. So I will not be able, this is disclaimer number one, okay? Write these down so that you don't sue me later. Disclaimer number one, I will not be able to answer every question on the topic of baptism today in this 30-minute presentation. However, I would invite you to come and talk to me or someone else should you have more questions. We want to dialogue about these things. Disclaimer number two. This is, I feel like one of those guys in the Geico commercials talking really fast at the end, you know? Okay, I am, I just told you what I'm not gonna do. Disclaimer number one, I'm not gonna answer all your questions. What I am gonna do, disclaimer number two, I'm gonna present a view of baptism that is a minority view amongst evangelical Christians today. And I hope that this would not offend you and that you wouldn't decide to stop coming to this church based on one sermon, especially if you're newer around here, but that you would continue to press on and simply try to explore this wonderful and strange Bible of ours fervently and zealously together as a community and for ourselves. You ready to dive in? Yeah. Let's talk about the history of baptism. Okay, what's the context? Don't lose the context here. Ephesians 4.4. 4. Paul says there's one Lord, there's one hope, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God. There's, uh, what did I miss? Um, one hope. I think I already said that. He, he states these one things in the context of being unified together in the Spirit of God. He says in Ephesians 4.3, he said, keep the unity of the Spirit. So he's implying that the Spirit of God is already unified with himself. He's telling the Christians, you got to keep that unity because the Spirit's in you. What does that also imply? That we tend to not keep that unity of the Spirit and thus create controversies and us versus them. And we disobey Paul's instruction there. So this is the context of what we're trying to do. We're trying to figure out how can we be unified on these one things as a community, as a church, as a body. And how does that directly relate to the great commission, the co-mission that Jesus has given us to go and make disciples and baptize them and teach them to obey everything. Many people are a bit shocked to find out that things that Christians must be unified on, like there's only one Lord and there's only one hope that we have of a resurrection. There's only one spirit of God. Many 
Christian folk are surprised to find one baptism listed in that list. Because we typically agree and there's no controversy on the fact that there's one Lord in the Christian faith. We have one hope of resurrection. You know, there's only one God and Father. But then we come to one baptism, we're like, er, okay, hold on, wait a second now. How did that get in there? Like Paul had a misstroke of the pen or whoever, you know, his, his scribe was that was writing for him. So let's just start with a backdrop on the history of baptism across the scope of the Bible a little bit. 30,000 foot, here we go. Baptism first appears in the Bible as ceremonial washings for the Levites in the Old Testament, such as in Leviticus 16, where Aaron is instructed by the Lord to bathe himself before he put on the sacred garments to be able to do what? To enter the sanctuary of the Lord. So this concept of bathing yourself to be able to worship shows up very early in the book of Leviticus. The history of baptism, the Jews also baptized non-Jewish converts as well as circumcised the men in order for them to be a part of the family of Yahweh. This is likely what would have happened to the Ethiopian in Acts 8. Okay, he's not a Jew by birth. He's a Jew by faith. They would have called him a God-fearer. He would have been, presumably, if he was an adult when he converted, they would have baptized him. And they would have circumcised him as well. Of course, moving forward in the chronology of the Bible, then you have John the Baptist come on the scene in the beginning of the Gospels, still under the Old Covenant. And John the Baptist starts preaching and practicing a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So that when people repented in the New Testament, but were still under the Old Covenant, they were receiving forgiveness of sins. So historically speaking, in the Bible, before we get to the New Covenant, baptism was always a physical immersion in water or a bath to produce something, to produce cleanness, to wash, and to purify spiritually. So this idea of washing yourself physically of water was very connected to this cleansing spiritually before God. That predates Acts 2 by a long ways. John the Baptist immerses repentant sinners for the forgiveness of sins, forming this community of people that are waiting for God's salvation and waiting for God's kingdom. And he says, look, I baptize you with water, but somebody's coming that's going to baptize you what? John 1 verse 33, John the Baptist says, I baptize you with water, but one's coming that will baptize you in the Holy Spirit. So we have this progression of baptism that starts out as a ceremonial washing in water to cleanse you, to go into God's temple, to make you a part of God's covenant people. Then John the Baptist comes on and he starts adding repentance and forgiveness of sins. And he says, what did you come out here to do, bro, to vipers? You better repent because the axe is at the root of the tree. So he starts talking about repentance in connection with baptism. Repentance meaning just to change, if we were going to boil it down to its simplest meaning. And then John says, there's going to be this new element of baptism as well from one that's coming after me, this element of the Holy Spirit and fire. It's interesting. So we see this progression of this idea of baptism and the meanings that it's holding in the scriptures. Then we arrive at the day of Pentecost, the day of the new covenant, where the promised outpouring of the Holy Spirit 
the promise from the Old Testament through prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Isaiah, John the Baptist. These guys were telling of a day when the covenant was going to change. Where no longer would my laws be written on tablets of stone, but on hearts of flesh. Jesus himself said this was going to happen. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. This is what we will... We will pick up our discussion of baptism in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. And again, please, refer back to your notes. Disclaimer number one and disclaimer number two. What was the first recorded message in the Bible that presented the Christian gospel? How were people initially told to be saved and forgiven of their sins after Jesus had died, risen from the dead, and ascended to heaven? We see this recorded by Luke in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is the first Christian sermon. It's the first preaching of any of Jesus' disciples about following Jesus and being made righteous before God through Jesus after he had died, risen, and gone into heaven. Jesus, of course, while he's walking the earth in his ministry in the Gospels, he's forgiven sins left and right. He's like, get up, leave your life of sin. You are purified. Left and right, he even says blatantly to his disciples in the crowds, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the power to forgive sins. I say to you, pick up your mat and walk. Amen. Jesus was forgiving sins at will while he was physically on the earth in his ministry. The Bible, the New Testament, the Gospels writers are very clear about that. But once Jesus leaves the earth, well, then what happens? Jesus says, wait in Acts 1. Wait. Don't go anywhere yet until the promised spirit has come. And this outpouring of the spirit was what all the Old Testament or most of the Old Testament prophets were prophesying about. There's going to be a day where God's covenant, God's relationship to us Israelites is going to be different. And his spirit is going to be at the core of that difference. And Jesus says, the spirit's coming. Don't worry. And then in Acts chapter 2, they're waiting around in Israel. They're waiting around in Jerusalem. And then something crazy happens. The Holy Spirit comes down on them early in the morning, starts making them do weird things. They're talking in known languages, but not known by them. Earlier in Acts 1, you see who's gathered around for this Jewish festival, people from all over the place, people speaking many different languages, all there for one purpose, to worship Yahweh. And then the Holy Spirit comes down in a physical, visible manifestation. It says that they were like, Tongues of fire. I don't know what that looked like. Did you have this little like super saiyan glow about you? You know, I don't know. But these guys could speak in other languages that other people spoke that were coming here. So it would be like Mickey coming from Germany, though probably not across the sea. But you get the idea. And he speaks German. He doesn't speak my Ebonics English. But God miraculously enables me to start speaking German to him. So that he can understand me. That's what the tongues were. They were known translations. It wasn't unknown or known languages. They weren't unknown languages like many people think of tongues today. And it was so strange for people that some people started saying, these guys are drunk. How can we make sense of this? Paul says, dude, it's nine in the morning. Even we're not getting drunk that early. (laughs) And he goes through, I'm skimming high level here. Go back and read this for yourself. I'm skimming chapter two. Peter gets up and addresses the crowd in verse 14, and he starts telling them about the history of the prophets. He starts telling them about some of the things that the prophets were saying. And this was an uneducated, ordinary man. 
This was not the educated elite of Israel. And yet he's still pulling stuff from Joel and from Psalms of King David. I mean, even the uneducated knew the word pretty well. So he's telling them that these guys in the past that we all believe, you know, we being all the Jews there gathered to worship Yahweh. We all believe that these prophets were sent by God and their message was true. And he's saying, guess what? They were true. That God was going to send a Messiah. And he says in verse 36, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So he encapsulates his message in one verse right here. Or, you know, really Luke does, because obviously we don't have every word that Peter spoke recorded, as it says down in verse 40. But the message is encapsulated here. He's making a case to the Jews that what God has said was going to happen, happened and we missed it. And we were actually responsible for killing him. Because he said, God made this Jesus whom you crucified. We know, a few verses later, there are thousands of people there from all over the area. Clearly not every single one of them literally physically killed Jesus. But he implies their culpability. He says, you killed him. Some of them weren't even in Jerusalem when Jesus was murdered. Some of them maybe have never even heard of Jesus being murdered yet, potentially. And he says, you crucified him. So I believe there's this implication here that we now know, having read the whole story that would have been new for these guys at this point, it's our sin individually that makes us culpable, even though we weren't there at Golgotha, even though we didn't drive the stakes through his hands and his feet, we're still culpable. And in addition to our culpability, he says, he says, God made Jesus two things, Lord and Messiah. Lord means master. And Messiah means Savior. And of course, the term Lord here in the middle of Israel being ruled by Rome and Caesar would have intrinsic, strong political overtones. Everybody knew what, G what Peter was saying here. Jesus, by the power of God, was made your Caesar. If you were to say that publicly, your life was in jeopardy. Just like Jesus was for the threat of being a king of the Jews. So there's these political overtones. There's these personal mastery overtones. There are these overtones of Jesus is the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for and we missed him. And actually I'm culpable because I killed him. And when the people heard this verse 37, they were cut to the heart. What does that even mean? I was studying the Bible with a young man the other day and he, I was reading the NET version and it said they were greatly distressed or vehemently distressed. And I was like, what does that even mean? This one says, cut to the heart. Look, I don't know exactly what it means, but they were moved. Right? Something happened to them. Some conviction came about. Some emotional movement happened. Some lights went off. I don't know, but something happened to the point where they go, what do we got to do? Uh, brothers, what should we do? So they want to change. Peter replies to them in verse 38. In, in response to their question, what should we do? He says, repent, which is not a new concept. Jesus had been preaching it throughout his entire earthly ministry. It's how Mark opens his ministry in Mark 1. He says, repent and believe the good news for the kingdom of God is near. 
And then, of course, John the Baptist was preaching repentance even before Jesus. He says repent, again, just to change, just to clarify that very religious term. Repent, we borrowed from Latin. We don't use it in any other context other than church. So it loses its meaning very often. Most people are taught repent means to feel sorry and ask for forgiveness, which it doesn't. It has nothing to do with that. The word literally just means to change. Okay? He says change and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized. About 3,000 were added that day, implying that there were plenty that did not accept his message. All right. Wow. Verse 38 and 39 is very controversial for us. He says, repent to change and be baptized for two outcomes. For the forgiveness of your sins and the reception of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right. Move over to Romans chapter 6. The one baptism high fly over 30,000 feet. Please reference disclaimer number one and disclaimer number two. Romans chapter 6 starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Apparently, Paul was writing to the Christians in Rome about some sort of theological question they had. Yep. Like, if God is gracious to us when we sin, shouldn't we sin more so that God would be then therefore more gracious? So we're actually helping God be greater and magnified in his graciousness. If we're sinning more, there's a certain logic to it, right? Yeah. Don't laugh too hard, guys. Right. Let's take planks out, okay? There's a certain logic to it. And of course, Paul says, by no means, we should not do that. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. Don't do that. And he explains why we're not to do that. He says, we are those, I'm reading from the NIV here, verse 2. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So he's saying we, he and the Christians he's writing to in Rome, he says we've died to sin. Past tense. That's already happened. So why would we keep living in it any longer? He says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized, now he's reminding them of the thing he said has already happened. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Paul says here, just a few chapters before chapter 10, verse 9, can anybody quote Romans 10, 9 for me? Raise your hand. What does it say, Michael? Believe in your heart and confess in your mouth and the Lord Very close, yes. He says, if you believe in your heart that Jesus was risen from the dead and confess with your mouth that he is Lord, you will be saved. Just a few chapters earlier, in the same letter to the same people by the same guy, he starts talking about this idea of having to die in order to live this new life. 
He says that we're actually buried with Christ in baptism through this vehicle of baptism. And that's when he's telling these Roman Christians, that's when you were actually dead to sin. So how could you keep going on living in it if you, you already died to it? We're not resurrecting that. So I'm personally not sure when I read a passage like this, how we can be saved or forgiven of sin if we're still alive in sin. We can't be forgiven of sin unless sin is dead. And Paul here is saying to the Roman Christians, this is how sin was killed. This is how you were dead to sin. In order for there to be a death, there's got to be a new birth as well, right? Which is exactly what Jesus tells Nicodemus in John 3, this very cryptic passage for Nicodemus, or a passage for us and experience for him. He's like, a man can't go back up into his mother's womb and be born a second time, can he, Jesus? That would be kind of hard, you know? And all of a sudden, you know, I have this imagery of Will Ferrell, you know, on Saturday Night Live coming out or something. But nonetheless, Jesus says, no, you got to be born again of water and the spirit. This is John chapter 3. So Jesus says there has to be a new birth. He says, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus was a bit confused about this idea of new birth. How does that happen? Paul here starts to allude in Romans 6 that there is a death and there is this new life. There's a death and a birth that happens in baptism, apparently, he told the Christians there in Rome. And this is the very same concept that he has in his epistle to the Colossians. Let's turn over to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. What did Paul mean by the one baptism with one Lord and one faith and one hope and one God in Ephesians 4? What did he mean by one baptism? Let's continue. So maybe an objection is rising in your mind or rising in your heart at this point. And I want to be very sensitive to that, right? For some of us, it's going to be like, oh, yeah, John, I heard this before, you know. For some of us, we're going, wait a second, dude. This is sounding very, very sketchy to me. And in fact, it might actually be sounding heretical. Because sure, John, I mean, baptism is a symbol of our death and burial with Christ, as Paul was just talking about. But let's face it, John, baptism's a work. And no one can be saved by works, according to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. That tells us that no one can be saved by works, but only through faith alone. That's very clear. So baptism is a work that therefore cannot save you. Right? Well, let's look over in Colossians 2 and continue the discussion. We'll read in verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Dude, let that bake your noodle for a minute. Wow. Paul is throwing out some strong language right here. Jesus is God in a body. That's just crazy. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He, Jesus, is the head over every power and authority. In him, in Jesus, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands, but your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off or cut off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith, in the working of God 
who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins, and men, see this, he's, he's, he's referencing these guys to their past. He's saying, guys, remember when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh? Remember how God made you alive with Christ? He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of the legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Paul says in verse 11 and 12 that it is in baptism that Christ circumcises our hearts and cuts away our sinful flesh. And of course, circumcision here is this well-known practice of the Jews that was ordained to them by God to be the sign that they were his covenant people. Do you guys remember that? Mm -hmm. That every male in Israel must be circumcised on the eighth day? Why? God, that is a strange covenantal sign. I don't know that I can explain all of that, but it was indeed the covenantal sign. And you were not a person of God if you were a male and had not been circumcised. It was an outward symbol showing that you were indeed covenant or covenantal with God. Paul takes this idea and he starts talking about a different kind of circumcision. A circumcision not done with human hands but a circumcision of our heart. And he starts talking about the cutting away of flesh, not this flesh, but of a fleshly nature, a sinful nature. Paul says here that the new sign for the new covenant people of God is no longer a cutting away of skin through circumcision, but the removal, the cutting away of our sinful flesh. And how does he say that cutting actually happens? He says, through baptism. Right? He says, verse 11, I'm picking it up. Your whole self was ruled by the flesh and that was cut off when you were circumcised by Christ. And how were you circumcised by Christ? Verse 12, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through what? Through faith. In what? In the powerful working of God. Who raised Jesus from the dead. So apparently Paul is viewing baptism not as a work of man, but as a powerful work of God. Wow. So this is saying that it's actually the powerful working of God that powerfully raised Jesus from the dead. That's doing a work in me, too. It's doing the work of removing my sinful flesh. It's not me doing it. I don't have the power to cut that away. Have you ever tried that? It's kind of hard. So he's actually agreeing with himself here with what he told the Ephesian church in Ephesians 2. When he says that that we're saved by grace and not by works. Because Paul didn't view baptism as a work of man, but rather a work of God. He says in verse 13 that although they were dead in their sins, God made, past tense, them alive in Christ. And he just got done telling them how God had done that. It's like he's reminding them of what they already knew. So through baptism, according to Paul here, a physical act, Paul says that there are also these spiritual realities that are actually happening and joining with that physical act. He says it's the remove the spiritual realities or the removal and cutting away of the sinful flesh 
by the circumcision of Christ. He says it's a death and a burial. He says that we're raised with Christ through faith. All of these spiritual realities are happening in this physical act of baptism and that we're being made alive with Christ. Oh, and he says all of our sins are forgiven. First Peter chapter three. Maybe this was just some strange theology that Paul had. And, and, you know, the other early disciples didn't really share it. Well, Peter, again, who was the same guy that was speaking in Acts chapter two, who delivered the first Christian message. And again, please remember, guys, high level, 30,000 feet, just looking at a handful of scriptures. There's a lot of other things that we can and should and need to study. But for the purposes of today, just trying to give you some place to start. First Peter chapter three, we continue with Peter's concept of baptism here. And this is, of course, you know, Paul's letter to Colossae and Peter, first Peter, this letter here. This is happening sometime after Pentecost, right? Likely a few decades after. He says in verse, um, I'm going to pick it up in verse 18, chapter three, verse 18. What do I have there? Yeah, 18. Mm-hmm. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, hallelujah, amen, to bring you to God. He, Jesus, was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, alluding to his resurrection there. After being made alive, after resurrecting, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. I can't explain that verse to you. Don't ask me what it means. There's about three common interpretations of that. All of them are kind of wild. For our purposes today, we're going to press on. He says, he he uses this to transition into an analogy about a boat and water and eight humans. He says, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, the ark, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. How were these eight people saved through water? Because they had a boat to climb into and nobody else had one of those and they all died from the water. Do you remember that story that he's referencing there in Genesis? He's saying these people who were in a boat, they actually got saved by the water. And he says, verse 21, and this water that saved those eight people symbolizes baptism that saves you now also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the appeal of a clear conscience towards God. It, being the water of baptism, saves you by what? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the, at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. So Peter admits, the same Peter that we read in Acts 2 that gave the first Christian message to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Later on in his ministry, he's writing back to some Christians. This is a general letter to Christians all over around the surrounding area. He says that same guy that there's nothing special about the water. He says very emphatically, H2O is not magical. It's just hydrogen and oxygen in a certain compilation. But what does he say is actually special? He says that it's our appeal towards God for a clear conscience and that it saves us through this resurrection of Jesus. So apparently for Peter, even early on, it was possible for someone to be baptized and just be taking a bath and removing some dirt from their body. 
And he says, that's not what the one baptism is. The one baptism is not just getting wet. There's a combination of physical and spiritual happening together. If it's just the physical, if it's just you going underwater, then it's just physical and it doesn't have any spiritual repercussions. So how does someone just actually take a bath? How can someone be baptized and it not be the one baptism that Paul refers to in Ephesians 4? Well, let me offer you some thoughts. When we're baptized and we're not appealing or we're not pledging to God for a clear conscience, what does that language or that terminology sound like, clear conscience? It sounds to me like forgiveness. That I'm no longer guilty, that that culpability that Peter talked about in Acts 2, that you crucified him, then my conscience is now clear for that. Yep. That's why they said, what do we got to do? How do we clear ourselves of this wrongdoing? Well, Peter says that the baptism is not the removal of dirt from the body, but it's actually where this clear conscience happens. It's where forgiveness is bestowed and my conscience is clear for having crucified Jesus because God raised him from the dead. And I believe that. And I have faith in that. And so that faith allows me to have this clear conscience through a physical act or symbol or practice of being baptized in H2O. Maybe we don't believe in the power of the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're baptized, but we don't really believe that he was raised from the dead. So we don't really believe that we're going to be raised from the dead. Peter said, you just took a bath, man. You just got wet. Maybe you got a little cleaner on the outside, but the spiritual thing didn't happen. That's not the one baptism that Paul was referring to in Ephesians 4. Peter says that just like Noah and his family got saved from water because they had a boat to climb into, so also we're saved through the waters of baptism, he says, not just through the physical H2O, but because we have a boat, an ark of faith in the resurrection of Jesus and an appeal to God to cleanse our conscience and forgive us of our sins. I'm confident you cannot see that. But this is a study I put together based on another study that someone else put together this past week. There are obviously many other scriptures throughout the New Testament that talk about salvation. This is a chart that walks through some of them. And I will make this PDF available online as well so you'll have this information. Salvation in the New Testament actually has a lot of different components. It's represented throughout many different passages by many different concepts. Concepts like faith, concepts like repentance, concepts like forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, the church, baptism. All of these concepts are actually connected to salvation in the New Testament, but not, in fact, most of these passages don't talk about all of those components in one place. And so if we pluck any one verse out, of the scriptures and hang all of our theology and doctrine of salvation, which I will use salvation as synonymous with forgiveness of sins, because how can we be saved from our sins if we're not forgiven of them? I don't think any of us have the power to go back in time and erase them or even have the power to go forward and not ever sin again. So God has to step in and do something about this problem that we have of sin, this separation. And if we pluck one verse out to hang all of our theology on, it can be very sketchy, can be sandy. Like Jesus talked about and how we build our house, right? This is a common exercise I like to take people through. Anybody know what John 3.16 says? Stand up and say it loud and proud, sister. Come on, John 3.16, please. For God so loved the world that he gave his only beloved. 
begotten son for those who for those who believe in him shall not perish but have eternal everlasting life. Thank you, Lucy. This is a very, very popular Christian verse. Before I was a Christian, it was about the only verse in the Bible that I knew. And I knew it from all of our friends holding up the signs at football stadiums. I thought John 3, 16, I need to learn, look, look that up and learn it. Um, and I also had a grandfather who was very religious that also taught that to me. John 3, 16, Jesus himself says that if you believe, you will have everlasting life. Paul in Romans 10, 9 that I referenced earlier, which is another popular passage for Christians in terms of this concept of salvation. He says that you have to be saved by believing in your heart that Jesus was raised from the dead and something else. You've got to confess with your mouth. So which one is it, Paul? Believe and confess? Or which one is it, Jesus? Is it just believe? You see the conundrum that can happen so quickly if we take singular verses and pluck them out and hang all of our theology on one of them. Of course, Jesus and Paul are both right simultaneously. But they're not necessarily communicating or expressing every concept or idea in every passage that's recorded in the Bible. That's a very modern, new way to approach the scriptures. We want the scriptures to read like a scientific textbook because we've been influenced by... The scientific revolution. So that's how we've come to learn to expect information to be given to us. Here's point A, subpoint B, subpoint 3, and here's your argument. That's not the intention of the writers of the New Testament or the Old Testament. They weren't writing under that guise of worldview understanding of knowledge and information. So they're not setting out at any one given place to tell you a list a, B, subset, point I, I. That wasn't their intention. They're telling a narrative. And so we have to build our theology on the narrative known as biblical theology, not basing our understandings of doctrines so key, like salvation, on even our beloved John 3.16. Mm. So this is a chart that talks about a smattering, not all, but a smattering of passages that talk about salvation in some form or another in many of these different kind of categories. Again, you see how I'm presenting this to you? In a chart yeah. with lines, right? <laughs> Okay, because again, I think this can help us connect with the information that's there and help us to, to process it more holistically. Okay, so this is a study of conversion and salvation through the book of Acts. And then you have other references through the New Testament that talk about these different, you know, whatever you want to call them, categories or, or facets or concepts of salvation. Okay, so if you want to take a picture of that, great, I'll send it out as well. But I just wanted to also help to reiterate by using this as an illustration that we can't cover all of this in one 30 or 40 minute presentation. I'm sorry if you're nodding off. I'm going to wrap up soon. One last thing that I wanted to talk about that is of a little bit less consequence, but I think still has some persuasiveness to it. And that is what did Christians think about this topic of the one baptism after the New Testament? So the New Testament is written approximately 50 AD to 90, 100 AD. The whole New Testament is basically written in about 50 years in that first century. And then it's been considered by Christians throughout the ages that that would close what we call the canon, what we call the Bible. But Christians after 90 AD, after Revelation is penned, they were still writing stuff too. We don't consider inspired to be Holy Scripture, divinely authoritative for our lives from God, like the canon scriptures. However, they wrote, and you can go read what they wrote. They're preserved. They're not even under copyright law because that didn't come until much later. So you can go find what they wrote for free on the Internet. 
You might have to pay somebody to translate it into your language, like English, but you can go read what a lot of these early Christians in the first, second, third century wrote and what they thought and how they dealt with life and how they dealt with theological issues and issues in the church. And you can read those things. There's a few things that I wanted to pluck out just to show kind of an overview of what many of the early Christians thought about this concept of baptism. Because guess what? It didn't become a controversy in our century. Okay? So these writings are from the first and second centuries. I'll give you some rough dates. A guy named Hermas. He says, before a man bears the name of the Son of God, he is dead. But when he receives the seal... He lays aside his deadness and obtains life. Sounds very similar to what Paul's already said, right? The seal then is the water. They descend into the water dead and they arise alive. This is Hermas around 150 AD. Justin Martyr says around the same time, around 160, he says, Accordingly, we have believed and testify that the very baptism which he announced is alone able to purify those who have repented. Arrhenius of Lyons, around 180. We're deep into the first cent second century now. When we come to refute them, them being the Gnostics, the people that were saying that Jesus was just pure spirit, he didn't come in bodily form, we will show in its proper place that this class of men have been instigated by Satan to a denial of that baptism, which is regeneration to God. Thus, they have renounced the whole faith. For the baptism instituted by the visible Jesus was for the remission of sins. That's crazy talk right there. I mean, Irenaeus is starting to say that the Gnostics are disavowing baptism, and that actually makes them wielders of Satan. I mean, that's really strong language. Clement of Alexandria, around, we're in like 195 now, close to the end of the second century. Being baptized, we are illuminated. Illuminated, we become sons. This work is variously called grace, illumination, perfection, and washing. Washing by which we cleanse away our sins. Grace by which the penalties accruing to transgressions are remitted. Illumination by which that holy light of salvation is beheld. That is by which we see God clearly. So some dense language there. Same guy, Clement of Alexandria, not Clement of Rome that Paul talks about in Romans. He says, in the same way, therefore, we also repent of our sins, renounce our iniquities, and are purified by baptism. Thereby, we speed back to the eternal light as children of the Father. This is not Holy Scripture. I'm just offering it as another angle of how did the earliest Christians after the New Testament process this stuff? How did they think about it? What were they dealing with? How did they communicate about it? So if it's helpful, hopefully, then it's helpful. This is just, again, a taste of, I mean, you, there's volumes that these guys have written. And some of it, you know, you can trace some doctrinal errors and skewing. But really, for quite a while, the consensus seems to be that Christians for centuries had a very uniform view on baptism. So what does that mean for us today? Baptism can be a very controversial thing for Christians, right? Do we baptize babies? Do we not baptize them? What exactly is the modality of baptism? Does it have to be fully underwater? Can it be sprinkling? What's the purpose of baptism? Is it an outward sign of an inward grace? Does it really save you? There's so many different viewpoints. Where do we conclude where we begin? 
Lay your eyes on the scriptures for yourself. Study this for yourself. And I am confident that God's word will do what he intends it to do. I'm not making this up. I'm open to being challenged. Let's be a community of people that really love God's word. And we're willing to let it say what it says, even if it's controversial for our current context. And guess what? Baptism is just one. There's a lot of concepts that the Bible explains that are very controversial for our current context. So let's be people that later Muhammad in the Quran would call people of the book. Let's be people of the book, which is how Muhammad referred to Christians. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's hard to understand sometimes, God. We need help. But thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for not leaving us as orphans or letting us just roam around with no direction, God. Thank you for your powerful spirit that lives inside of us, that regenerates us, that makes us new and clean and righteous before you, not because of what we've done, not because of any work that we have done, but because of your power and your grace alone. Increase our faith, Father. Help us to stand on your word. And when there is doubt, Father, help us to dig, to seek you with all of our heart. And Father, even when we come to places that are confusing, help us to learn how to be still and believe in the promises that you have made that are clear, even when there might be some things confusing to us at that time. We love you, Father, and we thank you for Jesus and for him bringing us together. It's in his mighty name we pray. Amen.